The following warnings were found on some consumer products. On a Duraflame fireplace log, there was this warning, caution, risk of fire. Well, isn't that the point? On a Batman Halloween costume, warning, cape does not enable user to fly. No kidding. On a bottle of hair coloring, do not use as an ice cream topping. On a cardboard sunshield for the windshield of a car, do not drive with sunshield in place. Is that even possible? On a portable stroller, caution, remove infant before folding for storage. Why don't we tell people the obvious, right? There are lots and lots of stupid warnings out there. But there are also some very real warnings. And those we need to pay attention to. And one of those very real warnings is in Hebrews chapter 3, where we pick up our study this morning. Hard hearts lose out on God's rest. And this is a very real warning for everyone. Don't harden your hearts. Keep your heart soft toward God. You will miss the rest that God promises to those who trust in Him. The book of Hebrews as I've pointed out before, includes five warnings spread throughout the book. This is the second of the five warnings. All of the warnings are directed toward those in the church who were in danger of turning back from following the Lord, turning away from the Lord. Now, in every church, there are those who profess faith in Christ, who get involved in the church only eventually to turn away from the Lord, to turn back to their lifestyles, their past practices. Hebrews warns us then, each of the five warnings is directed in this way, and it's framed in different ways, but each of them focuses on this aspect. Don't harden your hearts toward the Lord, because when that happens, inside your soul begins to die. So the first principle of hard hearts here in, in this warning passage in Hebrews is this. When we test God's patience, we miss God's promise. Verses 7 through 11, Hebrews chapter 3. Let's, let's just read this section. Hebrews 3 verse 7. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." 
Now, the quote here is from Psalm 95 in the Old Testament, which is a theological commentary, if you will, on the Israelites under Moses in the wilderness. The Israelites had followed Moses, of course, out of Egypt. He had led them out of 400 years of slavery in Egypt. They had seen God part the Red Sea miraculously to escape the the, uh, Egyptian armies. And they had seen God provide miraculously for their needs in the wilderness when they, they needed food, when they needed water. God had provided for them over and over again. They had witnessed at Mount Sinai God giving the law to Moses and establishing their nation and the ways that they were to follow. They had even followed the law for many years now in their travels. They were religious From the outside, it certainly looked like they were a people who followed God. They followed Moses. They were following his ways and the ways that had been set up. And we looked at the the precursor to all of this last Sunday in verses 1 through 6 and, and, and the discussion of how Jesus is superior to Moses. So don't turn back to Moses and his ways. But these people followed the, the religious rituals and the, the sacrifices and the things that were set up for them. The problem was inside. Inside their hearts, there was unbelief. They never truly believed God inside their hearts, although they were apparently religious on the outside. Now, these Israelites then came to Kadesh Barnea on the border of the Promised Land with with all the proof they needed that God would fulfill His promises to them. He had promised to take the nation into the Promised Land. They had all the proof they needed that they would enter the land, as they said, flowing with milk and honey and leave the desert behind them. They had arrived then at their point of decision. They came to their today, if you will. Three times in chapter 3 here in Hebrews, and once in chapter 4, we have the warning restated. Today, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. How long does today last? Today lasts as long as there is time to make a choice. Today lasts as long as the heart is still open and soft and listening to God. But there comes a time when today has passed. There comes a time when the heart is hardened beyond hope and today is gone. And that's what happened to the Israelites. The Israelites came to their today on the outskirts of the promised land. God was about to fulfill His promises And they hardened their hearts against God. They rebelled. In fact, it says here, Today if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. Really, it's as when they rebelled or revolted against me. You remember the story, Twelve spies were sent into the promised land, right? Twelve spies came back with their report. Ten said, Well, all 12 actually said, it's a wonderful land, 
flowing with milk and honey. It's just a wonderful place to live. But 10 said, there's giants there. There's too many challenges there. We can't enter the land. We're afraid. And 2 said, God promised, let's go. And the people followed the 10 and not the 2. They said they would be wiped out by the giants that they would face. God won't give us the victory. And so they rebelled. The issue was a matter of faith, was it not? It had to do with belief or unbelief. Will you believe God or will you not believe God? That's the today. That's the moment of decision. Will you trust Him or you won't trust Him? for the giants, for the, the struggles that you're going to face. Will you believe God's promises or will you not believe God's promises? It's a heart matter. It's not a religious matter. It's not a matter of following rules and regulations. It's not a, a matter of rituals. It's none of those things. It's a heart matter. Will you believe or will you not believe? You see, the people were ready to follow the Mosaic law, but not Moses. They were ready to follow the religious rules, but not the Lord. The issue is in the heart, and it is a choice between belief and unbelief in that day of decision. God's commands are always connected to God's promises. When God says, do something, He's also promising to help us do it. Is that not correct? We obey God's commands because we trust God's promises. What they did was turn the test back on God. And that's the commentary of Psalm 95. They tested God, it says in these verses, with their unbelief. They refused to believe that God could lead them into the promised land. Basically, they said to God, prove it. Prove it. But God had already proven Himself over and over and over again. He had proven Himself. They wanted more proof. Here's the problem. Unbelief never has enough proof. Unbelief never has enough proof. Jesus said this, this generation, if someone rose from the dead they, in front of them, they wouldn't believe. Well, He did and they didn't. Unbelief never has enough proof because it's a heart matter. People today test God all the time. Prove yourself, God. Fix my problem. Make my troubles go away. And I will follow you. But if you don't fix my problems, then I'll just follow my own ways and fix my own problems. I can get along just fine by myself. Thank you very much. If we are told by God what is right and what is wrong, and we still choose to do what is wrong, like they did, then what he's saying is we test God's patience in that circumstance. We put God to the test. We really show that we don't believe God's promises. You know, we often sing the hymn, Trust and Obey, right? But we could just as easily sing obey and trust. 
If we follow our own ways in life, we test God. Obeying God shows we're trusting God. And when, because when we, when we test God, we then show our unbelief before Him. We harden our hearts. We start that hardening process. And at some point, we're going to lose out on God's rest when that process begins. You and I will never find peace. We will never find spiritual rest when we harden our hearts against God. And it starts by simply testing God's patience, putting God to the test. When Fran's daughter heard her say, according to this newspaper article, most automobile accidents occur within a 15-mile radius of home, she asked, Mommy, why don't we move? All right, uh, the spirit at least is right. (laughs) Let's move. Let's do what we have to do to avoid the danger. Well, that's the spirit we ought to have when God warns us as well. We just have today. Nobody has anything other than today. We have this opportunity. Don't harden your hearts because... Today has an end, and you will lose out on God's rest. Second principle, we need each other to fight the seduction of sin. Verse 12, take care, brethren, look, brethren, pay attention, brothers, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. A little girl got home from Sunday school where she'd been taught the verse, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to, to the Father who is in heaven. She asked her mom when she repeated the verse what, what the verse meant. And her mom said, well, it means that, that when you are good and kind and thoughtful and obedient and you do the right things, you are letting Christ's light shine in your life before all of those who know you and are watching. She thought about that. But the very next Sunday, in Sunday school, the little girl got into a, a nasty fight with one of her friends. And she created such an uproar in the Sunday school class that the superintendent had to go get her, her mom and bring her in and, and uh, try and straighten out her daughter and, and get things worked out. Her mother was very concerned when she got there and she, she took her daughter and she set her down. She said, sweetie, don't you remember about letting your light shine before, for the Lord before men? And the girl blurted out, mom, I've blowed myself out. I've blowed myself out. Well, many of us have blowed ourselves out. That's the deceitfulness of sin. That's what happens. The word seduction of sin, the the word is seduction. It's, It's that seducing aspect to sin that is so deceitful that grabs us so much. Sin is seductive. 
When we get caught up in sin, it's, it's like sin sort of takes control of our lives and we've just got to have what we want to have. It's, it's almost like temporary insanity or something. And people have to go for that. And it's so seductive. It is so powerful. It just gets a hold of people's lives. Sin is addictive. We blow ourselves out, so to speak. Hebrews says, verse 12, Pay attention, brothers, lest there is in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now, he's talking to church people here. Not talking about the world, he's talking to church people here. Look inside yourselves first. The word brothers that is used here, and in these warning passages, I think in the book of Hebrews, we have to understand it this way. The word brothers does not mean that they were genuine Christians. He is talking to a mixed group of people who are a part of the church, a part of that body of people who profess faith in Christ. A mixed group of people, much like I might say to a mixed group of people on a Sunday morning or any preacher might say to a mixed group of people in a public service, brothers, friends, so on. You profess faith in Christ. You you do because you're here. I mean, this is church. This is what it's about. But watch out. Watch out. It is not that you can lose your salvation. It is that you will show an unbelieving heart that is already inside of you by what you do and how you live. Despite your profession of faith. Lots of people, it's easy to claim, I'm a Christian. What happens is the proof. As time goes on, as the pressures of life mount up, We eventually show on the outside what is really on the inside. Jesus told the parable of the sower and the soils, right? And how quickly the seed brought forth fruit, but how the cares of the world and the rocky soil and all of that just withered and died. In time it showed that there was no real life there. So, if we allow the seductive aspects of sin to slowly harden our hearts, then eventually we will really show that we have an unbelieving heart under the pressures of the circumstances of life. There really is only one unpardonable sin, right? The only unpardonable sin is unbelief. It's not believing. That's the only unpardonable sin. We cannot be saved if we do not believe in Christ. We can fake it. We can even justify our choices. But the choices eventually show what is really at its core, unbelief. We can go to church, and lots of people do. We can be religious. But what's inside will eventually show itself. Don't let it be an unbelieving heart. Those who fall away from the living God do so ultimately because of a heart of unbelief. 
So, we are to encourage one another not to be hardened by the seduction of sin. That's the point here. Encourage one another. Take care of one another. The reality is that no one can make it alone, really. We need each other. Christianity is a community faith, not just an individual faith. We need each other to avoid the hardening of our hearts that comes from sin. As Christians, we ought to be warning each other about the seduction of sin. We ought to be seeing and warning and encouraging one another with what we see. When we see someone who's heading down a wrong path, a dangerous path, then we are responsible to warn them, to talk with them, to encourage them to turn around. We need to call each other on sin issues. Why? Because we love each other. And we are responsible for each other. Sin is so seductive that a person can begin to rationalize a sin until the sin eventually hardens the heart. So he says, encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today. As long as there's still that opportunity. One of the problems we face in church life is that we often don't see what is really happening in another person until it's gone so far down that path that the heart is very hard already. And then when we confront, we find a hard heart. Don't tell me what to do. What right do you have? See, the heart has already become so hard. And people just blow it off. They go find another place. It's just the way it is. Rather than soften the heart toward God and repent. The key, the key is to know each other well enough that we can see what is happening. We can come alongside of that. The word encourage actually has its root sense of coming alongside of someone and, and correct the situation before the heart gets hard, you see. You can see where it's headed. Get to it quickly. We need to understand that we only have today. That's it. Nobody has more than that. We are to encourage one another according to each day. We are to call each other to repentance and hold each other accountable and, until it's no longer today. When it's no longer today, when does that happen? Well, when the heart has become too hard. Then today has passed and the person no longer listens. And those are very sad sad days. We see that over and over again in people's lives. So, the encouragement here is to us as Christians that we need to take seriously our responsibility to warn each other of the seduction of sin while the heart is still soft and can respond to God. A pastor named Paul Cedar wrote, My most painful experiences have been when I've had a problem and no one loved me enough to tell me about it. I've had a problem and no one loved me enough 
to tell me about it. That's what the church is supposed to do. That's what real love is. Now, I don't mean that we want to become sort of vice cops running around, you know, picking at everybody. I don't want, we don't want to be moral exterminators. That's not what this is all about. We don't want to be legalistically condemning one another all the time. We need to have the kind of relationship with someone that allows us to question the sinful path they're following with love. We need to see where someone is heading and come alongside of them in love and point that out and how that, that's going to lead to bad things and hard hearts and this isn't good. But we do so by coming alongside of someone in love. That's, of course, why we need the small groups. We need the relationships in church where that can happen. We need each other to fight the seduction of sin. That's how we fight against the hardening of the hearts. Third principle. How we end is more important than how we begin. How we end is more important than how we begin. Verse 14. For because we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. While it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me. We have become true partakers of Christ. True Christians, if you will. If, do you notice that word? If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance until the end. The condition is critical. And we're going to see this in each of the warning passages in the book of Hebrews. The condition is critical to determining who is truly a partaker of Christ. It's not whether you go to church or even which church you go to. It isn't the rituals. It isn't the signs and all of those kinds of things. It's heart and if. You see, if, here is the condition. And we've already seen this condition, by the way, stated back in verse 6 as he he headed into this warning back in verse 6, the author of Hebrews said that we are a part of God's household, his family, if if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. There's the condition again. And as we said last week then, continuance is the proof of salvation. The ending then proves the beginning. Perseverance is the only real assurance of real salvation. Now, the words that are used here in the Greek text are are really rather colorful words. The word translated hold fast is the same one we talked about last Sunday. It was used of, of arresting somebody who had stolen camels in the first century. It meant to arrest to apprehend, to seize someone, okay, or something. So we are to arrest the beginning reliability or firmness that we had. The word for firm means something that is unwavering or unmoving, like, like an anchor. It was used of an anchor that was tied to the ocean floor to keep the boat from moving. So we are to arrest this anchor that we had in the beginning, and not let go. The word for assurance is a word 
that means the substantial nature or essence of something or someone, but it was also used of commercial transactions. It meant a plan or a project that had been started, a commercial plan or project that had been started. It could even mean a title deed to the property, the guarantee of ownership. You own this, see. So, what is he saying? We are to arrest or seize unwaveringly the project that was started in our lives until we get to the end. The project that was started, you know, and, and, and oftentimes people respond and, and they're so excited and they're, to be, you know, they're, they're saved, they're a Christian, and there's so much excitement, you've got to arrest that, you've got to seize that, and you've got to hang on to that all the way to the end. Because life... The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. It's all the way. All the way. That's the guarantee. Sometimes when a person professes faith in Christ, right, they respond and there's so much excitement and everything looks so good and life seems so great. But then the stuff of life just starts coming on, right? And the struggles and the challenges And the choices, the person just begins to slip and slip and slide away until the heart becomes hardened. That just proves that the person never really was a Christian in the beginning. So we're to hold fast the beginning all the way to the end. That's the, way we, that's the only way we know we're really partakers of Christ. How we end is more important than how we begin. Finish the race. All the way through Scripture we're told to do that. Bart Ehrman is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, 2005, misquoting Jesus. You may have seen him on television shows. Bart Ehrman views the Bible as just another human book and Jesus not just another human Jesus. He has appeared on two national public radio shows, maybe more, I think, by this time. He's been interviewed by the Washington Post. He has been a guest celebrity on Jon Stewart's The Daily Show and also on The Colbert Report. For some time, his book was on the very top of Amazon.com bestseller list. And as I said, he was a New York Times bestseller as well. He is today one of the leading experts that is often interviewed on textual criticism by the media as it is used to debunk the truth of, of the Bible. But let me tell you a bit about Bart Ehrman's story. Bart Ehrman grew up in an Episcopal church in Lawrence, Kansas. His family was not particularly religious. But as a teenager, he he made some friends and he eventually heard the gospel and he had a, by his own testimony, a born-again experience. He became a Christian. And as a teenager, he had this experience and professed faith in Christ. And as a teenager, he got really involved in Bible study and went to church and really got going. So much so that eventually he was so excited about studying the Bible that he he enrolled at Moody Bible Institute when he graduated from high school. 
And he graduated from Moody Bible Institute and went on to study at Wheaton College, a, a very fine conservative evangelical school as well. Eventually, he did his doctoral work at Princeton Seminary under the renowned New Testament critic Bruce Metzger. Now, what you need to know about Bruce Metzger is he is a defender of the reliability of Scripture, unlike his protege, Bart Ehrman. What happened? Here's a guy who was born again. Here's a guy who went to the bastions of our, of our Christian faith like Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College. And now he doesn't believe it. What happened? What happened? Well, you can multiply that story around with lots of other stories that are very similar. In fact, uh, in some of the, the Christian literature of those who deal with, with all of this textual criticism and the, 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 the re, um, reorienting of Jesus, you know, the, the, the total new understanding of who Jesus is and all of that, say that many of the leaders of all of those movements started out where? In evangelical Christian churches and colleges. What happens? Well... What happens is the end is showing that the beginning wasn't real. From all, for all intents and purposes, he is not a man who is a partaker of Christ. He has an unbelieving heart. Now, I don't know his heart. That's between him and God. But from all he's doing, it would appear that he does not have a believing heart. Finish the race. That's the consistent message of the New Testament. If you really know Christ, finish the race. I pray constantly, Lord, help me to finish well. Why? I don't want, don't let me end up in a swamp somewhere, Lord, spiritually. I want to finish well. It should be the prayer of every Christian. Finish well finish the race. That was Paul's prayer at the end of his life in 2 Timothy when he says, I have finished the race. I've completed the course. I want to be able to say that, don't you? Because that's how we know that we are partakers of Christ. That's how we know it's real. There's lots of ups and downs all through everything, right? But when you get to the end, is it real? Have you gone through whatever life threw at you and trusted him all the way to the end? That's the rest that God promises. Finish the race well because, fourth principle, we won't find rest if we don't trust God. Verse 16, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? See, it wasn't the Egyptians. It wasn't the pagans. It was the religious people who put God to the test. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they should not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? And so we see that they were not able to enter the rest because of unbelief. They didn't trust him. They didn't trust God. 
Forty years, the generation that rebelled against God refused to follow the Lord into the promised land on there today when God told them to go. Because of unbelief, they didn't go. God said, you'll all die in the wilderness. You'll never see the rest. You'll never enter the land. Except for the two spies who were faithful. They did get to see the land, the promised land. But all those who rebelled against God never found rest in the promised land. The issue is faith, isn't it? It's trusting God. The bottom line is that they did not believe God's promises enough to obey God's commands. They went their own way in life and they lost out on enjoying the promised rest of God. Now, we don't enter a physical promised land. The promised, we're going to look at the rest in chapter 4 because the rest is our salvation in Christ. That's what he's going to be talking about in chapter 4 and how we should enter into that rest and the only way we do is by faith. But if we refuse to trust God enough to obey his commands, then we're going to lose out on the rest, the peace we can have in the salvation that God offers us now and forever. In his book, The Pressure's Off, Psychologist Larry Crabb uses a story from his childhood to illustrate our need to really trust God for who he is and and what he plans for our lives. One Saturday afternoon, he said he he decided when he he was uh, three years old that he decided that he was a big enough boy that he could go and use the bathroom himself. And so he went upstairs and he went into the bathroom and he closed the door and he locked the door behind him and he felt so self-sufficient. Three years old self-sufficient. The problem was that when he went to get out of the bathroom, he couldn't unlock the door. He just wasn't strong enough to turn the lock, and he couldn't get out, so he started screaming, help, help. All the neighbors are hearing this little kid screaming, and his mother comes running up, and she can't open the door from the outside, so there he is. He's stuck in the bathroom. He can't open the door. His father hears his screams, goes, gets a ladder, puts it up outside, opens the bathroom window, climbs in through the bathroom window, opens the door. He says, thanks, Dad, runs off to play. Larry Crabb writes these words. That's how I thought the Christian life was supposed to work. When I get stuck in a tight place, I should do all I can to free myself. When I can't, I should pray. Then God shows up. He hears my cries, get me out of here, I want to play. Unlocks the door to the blessings that I desire. Sometimes he does. But now, no longer three years old and approaching 60, when he was writing these words, I'm realizing the Christian life doesn't work that way. And I wonder, are any of us content with God? Do we even like Him when He doesn't open the door that we most want opened? When a marriage doesn't heal? When rebellious kids still rebel? When friends betray? When financial reverses threaten our comfortable way of life? When the prospect of terrorism looms? When health worsens despite much prayer? When loneliness intensifies and depression deepens? When ministries die? Do we still trust God? See, we want God to 
unlock the door so we can go out and play. God wants us to trust him and find our rest in him. Oswald Chambers wrote, It is easy to trust in God when we have not to hunt for money. But immediately when the penny that is not there looms large, we allow the mosquito of worry to irritate our whole life from rest in God. Maybe it's not money that's your mosquito of worry. Maybe it's something else, health or circumstances or relationships. I don't know what it is. But what is it? What are your giants, so to speak, in that promised land that keep you from finding your rest in God by faith? I don't know what you face this week, but I know you can trust God. I know that. Even if the way seems filled with struggle and heartache, you can have peace. You can find rest in God if you will trust Him throughout it all. All the way. He may not open the door you want opened. He may not give you what you want. But he has a better plan for you. Trust him. Not me. Trust him. Don't harden your heart against his plan. Don't harden your heart against... Keep a soft heart toward God. Let him mold you. Let him shape you. Because if you do, you will have rest. If you don't, you will lose out on that rest. Stick with the Lord and his plan and don't follow the path of sinful desires and turn away from the Lord because you end up in a desert instead of the promised land. A couple of years ago, we visited Arlington Cemetery on a family vacation. It really wasn't on the top of my list of things to see, quite frankly. There's so much in Washington, D.C. But it was, if not the top, near the top of my daughter Katie's list of things to see, and particularly the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. Some of you probably have been there. And it is a a very moving ceremony as you watch the changing of the guard there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Arlington. We didn't see this experience, but... Harry Heinz of Troy, New York, saw something that, that uh, you don't often see at the changing of the guard. Of course, he saw all of the, the moving and, and solemn experiences. The guard went through its process of changing its rotations uh, there at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which, of course, honors all of those who have died in wars protecting our country, and, and we're much appreciative of that. But then at the end of that ceremony... Uh, Sergeant Jennings, who was there doing the ceremony, the commanding officer stopped everything and, and he said Sergeant Jennings had just completed 27 months of this duty, the changing of the guard at the tomb of the unknown soldier, 27 months. He was retiring, so to speak, from that duty. And so he was going to pay his personal respects to the unknown soldiers. And a guard escorted his family to a place of honor. The commanding officer handed uh, Sergeant Jennings four roses, and he approached the, the tomb of the unknown soldiers from First World War. He knelt and he placed the rose there. He moved with solemn dignity to the tomb, honoring the unknown soldiers from the Second World War, then the wars in Korea and Vietnam, and he placed a rose there very solemnly, silently, 
And then he came back and he saluted his commanding officer. And they, they locked eyes and he shook hands very formally with his commanding officer. And then he did something else. He took off the white gloves very carefully, folded them up, and handed them to his commanding officer. I've finished my responsibility. Harry writes, with tears running down my face, I thought of standing before my Lord Jesus someday, taking off my gloves and handing them to him. I want that, don't you? I want to be able to stand before Jesus. I want to be able to take off those gloves, say, I've done my responsibilities. Here you go, Lord. And I want to hear him say, well done, don't you? Finish the race and finish it well. Father, please help us. Please help us to finish what has been started in our lives, the project you started. And we also know those passages that tell us that you will finish what you start in our lives. And so by faith in you, we ask you to help us to finish well for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.